Well, our, our chosen news outlets have become like our catechism. And what I mean is that where we're putting our attention, where we're putting our focus, what we're taking in over and over and over again is shaping us in ways that actually shape us far more deeply and widely than any amount of time we spend on spiritual formation because we're spending all of our time thinking about it, in the midst of it, conversing with it, with our minds and with others and our family. And there is a conversation on my favorite news station that happens over and over and over again, and it, 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 I'm almost tired of it. And usually it involves people talking over one another and yelling at one another, and the gist of it is they're all trying to decide who is the GOAT. Because my favorite news station is ESPN. And that's, if I'm going to watch one, that's where I'm going to watch. And they're always talking about the goat. Now, I'm old enough to remember a time when I was too young to say I'm old enough to remember a time. But I'm old enough to remember a time this morning when being the goat was a bad thing. Being a goat, if you're talking about it at church, in scripture, uh, you talk about the sheep and the goats, and nobody wants to be one of the goats, even if the goats aren't all that bad, or in sports or anywhere else, when you talk about the goat, it used to be that you're talking about someone who messed up, someone who's at fault, someone who has failed, but at some point in my early adulthood, that shifted, and everybody began to talk about the goat in a different way. This is probably why Isaiah Pacheco was carrying that goat around at the parade last week. Are are, are any of you wondering about that? It's an acronym, greatest of all time. We've actually had some people asking about that. So there you go. The goat. Who is the goat? And by giving him that, they're trying to say something not about Isaiah Pacheco, but about number 15. By the way, if anybody wants to get me a t-shirt, I like those creative hometown t-shirts. And one of them, there's, it's red. There's an image of a goat on it. And it says 15 in the middle of that. And I'll take that if you want to share that with me. That's great. It's not about me. Um, but who is the goat? Is it, is it Brady or Mahomes? Is it LeBron or is it, is it Jordan? They like to talk about this again and again and again, and I'm just about tired of it, but we have to talk about the goat this morning because Jesus is talking about the goat this morning. That's basically what's happening in Matthew 22. There's a conversation that they are tired of, a conversation that many people are having over and over and over again, and the conversation is about what is the goat command. The greatest command of all time, the greatest law of God of all time. And this is not a question that was new or unique to Jesus. This is a question that was floating around and they were conversing about all the time, talking over one another, trying to see who had the best insight or the best idea. And they're trying to trap Jesus, of course, we know, by asking him this. There are 613 laws in the Old Testament. And so with 613 laws, there are 612 opportunities to scrutinize his answer, to criticize his answer, to to talk about why his answer wasn't the right answer. But of course, he gives what is one of the only answers that they couldn't be upset about because it was the most commonly given answer, and then he makes a little twist on it. One scholar remarked that Jesus' answer was so traditional, no one could challenge him on it. And so deeply searching, everyone else would be challenged by it. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. And there was nothing really earth-shattering about Jesus offering this. This was the Shema. So by the second century, this was a prayer that Jewish people were praying every single morning, at least once, if not multiple times a day. So Jesus offering this command from Deuteronomy 6.5 is not really that surprising, that innovative. But in his simplifying of the law here, he does something that is innovative, and that is offering the neighbor command from Leviticus 19.18 alongside it. And when he does this, especially here in Matthew, if you notice, he says in verse 39, and the second is like it, which in an interesting way makes the two commands one. So that when Jesus puts these two commands together, he's giving us a way to understand what it means to love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he's intermingling it with what it means to love ourselves and what it means to love our neighbors. So that if we want to love our God well, we're loving our neighbor well. If we love ourselves well, we probably understand the love of God at a deeper level. And all of these things are working together. So Jesus has taken this one command and he has simplified it and summarized it in a way that has also made it where it can be innovative and applicable in any number of situations. Now, this reminded me, as I was looking at this and thinking about our series of an illustration that Jeff Langford, our uh, outgoing deacon chair, uh, shared at our most recent deacon retreat, and it was basically about the Kansas City Chiefs. Now, if you know Jeff, that may be hard to believe. Um, but I've got a secret. Jeff and I have a lot of conversations about the Kansas City Chiefs. And so he pointed me to this article and thinking about it after the deacon retreat that I think kind of grabs on to a little bit of what's going on with the applying of this great command and what we're doing throughout this Lenten season. So here's the article from, I believe, U.S. News and World, World Report. There was a moment back on Christmas Day. Anybody tired of hearing about the Chiefs yet, by the way? Just checking. There was a moment back on Christmas Day, long before the Kansas City Chiefs could even start thinking about playing in the Super Bowl again. This is, by the way, an article written in January. When Patrick Mahomes broke the huddle in a game against the Las Vegas Raiders, his team was in total disarray. Players were coming off the sideline, then racing back, only to turn around and run back onto the field. Nobody knew where to line up, and all the while, the play clock was quickly clicking down to zero. And that moment may have changed the course of the entire season for the Kansas City Chiefs. In the midst of that deflating loss to the Raiders, their fifth in eight games, Chiefs coach Andy Reid and his offensive brain trust came together and had the realization that their famously complex offense had grown, well, too complex. There were too many formations, too many motions, too many route concepts. In fact, there were too many words, often more than 15 to spit out in a single play. And so, the Chiefs simplified everything, and they haven't lost since. By simplifying things, the Chiefs 
have gotten to the line of scrimmage in the playoffs with 15 or 20 seconds on the clock, and that has given Mahomes time to survey the defense, change protections, or audible to an entirely different play if necessary, or in other words, the simplification has allowed them to innovate. Nobody took offense to any of this, Coach Nagy said. We just said, how can we get better? And we started with that. They started with that. What did they start with? They started with simplification. They started by simplifying the play calling in a way that would be more easy to understand and also innovate off of, which is not so different than what Jesus does here in Matthew 22 in the way that he simplified and summarized the law so that it can be applied to us in various situations in innovative ways in our understanding. And getting back to the basics for them was essential. Just like getting back to the basics for the Chiefs was essential this year as well. And it started not with games, but actually with practice. Andy Reid is actually famous for his practices among a lot of players, how he makes the practices really intense and difficult, but also in this simplification, because Andy Reid understands that success ultimately begins not on your game day, but in practice. In fact, many of Mahomes' most magical moments are things he has actually practiced. On my favorite news outlet, ESPN, They have shown video of this. And you can see the different ways he practices his innovation. He's been through these cycles in the practice field before it happens on the playing field. And this is important in all levels of training. I was talking with a police officer once about the importance of drills and training and rehearsing things over and over and over again, especially when it has to do with crisis situations, not unlike what also happened at the parade this past week. And so they lead us uh, as schools and churches and various organizations, police and security officers will help lead us through these various training exercises so that when the thing happens, we're ready for it. And he said the concept that they use when they're doing that is this. He said, in a high-stress situation, your mind will have a hard time taking your body where your body has never been. In a high-stress situation, when things are extra anxious and extra chaotic and extra crazy, your mind will have a hard time taking your body where your body has never been. This is true in the life of faith as well. This is true when, when things happen in our lives and, and we're sensing, you know, what, what does it mean for us to connect with God and others in a meaningful way in this moment? A lot of times the depth of meaning in that arises out of how we've been living our everyday lives. This is true in our lives of faith, and this is really the purpose behind our Lenten emphasis this year. On Ash Wednesday, we talked about that call to follow Jesus, the Greek word alakatheo, which means to come along on a journey or to walk alongside someone, which is what Jesus is inviting us to do in so many ways. In so many ways that sometimes it can begin to see so complex and complicated that we don't even know what to do at all. It's just, it's, just, it's just too much. If, if we can't do everything, then we end up doing nothing. And yet, the Lenten season invites us not only to 
engage more deeply in the work of discipleship, but to simplify the way that we engage. So what we're going to do throughout this Lenten season is we're going to invite you to consider and explore more deeply five essential practices that Christians have been practicing for thousands of years to cultivate that depth in their relationship with God and with others as followers of Christ in this world. Five essential practices that have helped Christians in corporate and individual ways over the course of hundreds of thousands of years to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbors well as ourselves. Each has a corporate and a private dimension and here they are. And by naming them, what I'm really inviting all of us to do is to re-engage them and recommit to them in simple and yet deep ways. The first one is worship. Worship in a corporate sense like we're doing now. Worship in an individual sense like the prayers you pray and show up for every single day of your life. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright has said this about worship. When human beings give their heartfelt allegiance to and worship that which is not God, they progressively cease to reflect the image of God. Remember when I talked about our chosen news stations as our catechism, our spiritual formation. We can think about a number of other things in our lives that when we focus on those things, we become like those things. One of the primary laws of human life, Wright says, is that you become like what you worship. What's more, you reflect what you worship not only to the object itself, but also outward to the world around you. Those who worship money, increasingly define themselves in terms of it and increasingly treat others as creditors, debtors, partners, or customers rather than human beings. Those who worship sex define themselves and their lives and others by it. Those who worship power define themselves by it and treat other people as either collaborators, competitors, or pawns. We worship, we become like what we worship. What we focus our attention on is what we become. So in our daily lives, in our weekly life, in corporate ways and individual ways, we're inviting you to recommit your life to worship. Secondly, study. That's the way in the book that we're looking at for this, Adam Hamilton's book, um, The Walk. Study is something that we do that involves both the scriptures and also other dimensions of life as well. Study is important. We talk about membership expectations here at the church, not because of what we want from people, but because of what we want for people. And we invite people to commit at a lower level than weekly to say, I'm just going to commit one time a year to doing something that would enrich my faith, my relationship with God. That could be a retreat, That could be a small group. What we really want is weekly, daily even engagement in study but whatever, whatever will work for you. Study has been important to formation in Christians for centuries. Study is important in so many areas in life. Like you've got to study the rules if you want to know them when it comes time to know them. Like in football, it's not a bad idea to study the overtime rules for playoffs. Also a note from one of my favorite news stations about the 49ers and how their players did not know the overtime rules. Thanks be to God. Um, study is important 
And it's a huge part of what it means to love the Lord our God with all of our mind. Giving is also important. And we get nervous about talking about this, but giving is one of the practices that can both shape our soul and reflect the state of our soul. In fact, in that passage that we heard earlier when it says to love the Lord your God with all of your strength, the word strength there can be translated wealth. Love the Lord your God with all that you have, with all of your wealth, with all of your stuff, with all of your muchness. Love God with your muchness. Love God with all that you have, and that involves your resources. That's what it means to love the Lord your God with all of your strength. And your resources also include other parts of your life, which moves us down to serving, the doing of our faith. In our membership expectations, we talk about, Greg talks about in the new member um, course, uh, the expectation for serving being weekly, you know, one thing that you do a month in the life of the church, and 10 to 15 hours of something that you do outside of the church um, throughout the year. But what we're really after is you finding that place where you can be generous in this world and give back the gifts God has given you in serving others. Loving your neighbor as yourself in the ways that you serve and especially even getting to the sense where you understand you're serving out of a calling or out of your vocation like Frederick Buechner talks about. That place in the world where the world's greatest need intersects with your deep gladness. We want you to understand what God is calling you to, what God has made you for, and to live that out in the way that you serve others. And then the the fifth thing is sharing your faith, which makes a lot of us really uncomfortable. But there are a lot of ways to share your faith. And when we share our faith, when we name it out loud, we deepen it also within us as much as spreading it to others. We celebrate it. We shine a light on it. We see what God can do with it. Many of our community groups began um, with the reading of the book, Discovering and Sharing Our Spiritual Autobiography, which really helps us begin to notice those obvious intersections of the life of God in our own life and our own stories. When we share our stories, we strengthen our faith and we strengthen the faith of others. On Palm Sunday, when we talk about faith sharing, one of my oldest friends, James Piazza, we've been friends since junior high, is going to come and he's going to talk about some of the ways in the morning, he's also going to be our Holy Week speaker, that sharing faith, that God has used sharing faith and sharing stories in powerful ways in his own life and through his own life. My friend James, when we were 16 years old, when we were in high school, him and uh, two of my other friends were in an automobile accident, which left him paralyzed from the chest down. And James and I have had a lot of experiences together, powerful, transforming experiences together. I was his nurse's aide in college. He knows where all of uh, the bodies are buried in my life. So I've actually had a little bit of remorse after asking him to come. You may find things out about me that I don't want you to find out because James has got the stories all the way back to junior high. But James is going to come and share about... The power of sharing your faith, not only his faith, but also your faith. You sharing your stories and how God has intersected with your life in this life. What might it look like for you to begin taking steps throughout this Lenten season in those five areas? Worship, study, giving, serving, and sharing your faith. 
that may sound a little too complex, like a little too much, but what, what, would it, what would it look like for you in the ways that you feel like you can handle to begin practicing your faith in those five ways more deeply and more thoroughly as we move toward Good Friday and Easter Sunday during this Lenten season? This Lent is going to be about us getting back to the basics, simplifying so that God can also use us in not just simple but innovative ways. I'd like for us to have a few moments to reflect on our sense of commitment and how Jesus is calling you to deepen your commitment to God in the days ahead. And then following that time of reflection, Chip will lead us in